should be on. Am I on? Am I on? Yes, oh, look at that. I'm on. I'm in. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be with you this morning. Um, for some time, I've stood up here and said, we're continuing our series on Everyday Supernatural. But today, I'm going to say something different. We're finishing our series on Everyday Supernatural. We've, so this is Preach 17, uh, would you believe? Uh, and I started it, actually, um, on the 4th of September last year with an introduction to Everyday Supernatural. And I think it's been a, a great series. And we're finishing. Their final chapter uh, is called Sustaining the Supernatural. So I could have called my talk Sustaining the Supernatural. Uh, and they're talking about persevering, you know, keeping going with the supernatural. So I could have called my talk Perseverance. But I thought, I'm not sure I like either of those titles. So I'm going with It's Only Crazy Until You Do It. So that's the title of my talk this morning. And uh, you'll hopefully see why uh, as we go on. So the last in the series, how do we maintain our enthusiasm for experiencing the supernatural every day? Well, James says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what James identifies is that it's trials, it's the challengings to our faith that help us to endure. And he identifies that and he says this is valuable and this is helpful. It sounds crazy. Some years ago, quite a number of years ago, uh, my brother, who's a few years older than me, uh, left school. And he decided when he left school, he wanted to see the world. So he decided to join the Navy. And he, he looked at the Royal Navy and uh, he wasn't convinced. And so he signed up for the Merchant Navy. And he literally had to sign up. He had to put his signature on a document that said he would abide by certain rules, that he would do what he was told, that he would go where he was sent and so on. And it gave him the opportunity to see the world. And he did. He travelled round the world in both directions completely. And at times, he wasn't able to do the things that he wanted to do. I remember one Christmas, we were celebrating... Christmas as a family, and Terry wasn't there. He was in New Zealand, the other side of the world. And we had a very crackly phone call late on Christmas night when he was celebrating Christmas morning, and we were saying, hello, happy Christmas, you know. It wasn't in the age of mobile phones. Uh, it was quite difficult, and, and he missed us, and we missed him. But he had signed, literally signed on the dotted line and agreed that he would do what he was told and go where he was sent. And he did see the world. 
But he came back with self-discipline. And he came back with a respect for authority. And he came back with an appreciation of hard work. And he came back able to take instruction, even though he didn't always know why he was doing what he was doing. And he, you could say he came back mature, or more mature than when he left. And I want to start by saying, I want to explain what it is you signed up for when you became a Christian. So we're going to start with this is what you signed up for. Perhaps we should uh, have the equivalent of national service for new believers. You know, we could call it kingdom training where we are sent on a boot camp to, with a Christian organization somewhere in the world so that we learn the ropes of what it means to be a Christian. Because I think it's easy for us to take the step of faith and not realize what it means. You know, we say Jesus is Lord, but we haven't got a full understanding of what that means. And that's why we have various courses that we use to explain that. You see, Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, if I break that down a little bit, and say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That's like respect for authority. That's accepting that it's not my will, but it's somebody else's will. And take up their cross. Well, that sounds like hard work to me. Daily sounds like self-discipline. And follow me means I'm able to take instruction and do what somebody else wants without always knowing what it is or why it is that I'm doing it. You see, that's what Jesus did. He did the will of his Father every day. He said, I, I don't come to do my will, I come to do the will of the one who sent me. And we read about uh, Jesus being filled with the Spirit and then led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He didn't do the things that he wanted. It wasn't following his own agenda. He wasn't sent off by God to say, well, go, yeah, go and sort it out, Jesus. No, every day he followed the things that God was asking him to do. Sometimes he knew, it seemed like he knew in advance, we're going to go there. We're heading off in that direction. Other times it was more interactive. Things just happened to him. And Paul encourages us Similarly, he says in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, we can easily imagine that this is our service of worship. You know, we call it worship. We come and worship. We come to worship. And that is what we do. Well, what do we do the rest of the week? Well, Paul says, offer yourselves to God 
as a holy sacrifice. You're giving yourselves to the Father to say, what, what do you want me to do today? What have you got in store for me today? Where are you going to lead me today? Well, how do we do that? Well, in, in this book, as we've gone through it, you know we've looked at various gifts of the Spirit and we looked at them in detail. Well, in this last chapter, they identify another gift, um, but it's not one you'll find in the New Testament. It's, they call it the gift of plodding. And under that sort of heading, we're going to look at some people who could be identified as being successful, and we're going to try and see what their secret was. You know, if we did have a kingdom training and you were sent somewhere in the world, I imagine there will be a number of places you'd quite like to go, but there might well be a few places that you're not sure you'd want to go. You know, you might think, it'd be nice to go to the south of France. Yeah, I think I'd like to go to the south. Or Barbados. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, you know, I'd quite like to visit India. I'm not sure I'd like to live there for several years. Well, 230 years ago, a guy called William Carey did exactly that. He left this country and he went to India as a missionary. And he is celebrated as the father of modern mission. And by the end of his life, he had seen thousands of people come to faith. He had established multiple routes into India for different missionary opportunities. He had translated the Bible into six different languages. Bengali, Orlia, Assamese, Arabic, Hindi and Sanskrit. Isn't that remarkable? And towards the end of his life, he was asked what was his greatest gift. And this was his reply. If people would ask, what was Mr. Carey's greatest gift? I would have told them Mr. Carey's greatest gift was that he knew how to plod. Now, when you hear of his accomplishments, and I'm not convinced that that's everything, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things that he did, you wouldn't necessarily say that, oh yeah, I think, I think he was a plodder. Yeah, he was a bit of a plodder. No, you'd think, goodness me, he was an amazing guy. How did he do that? Well, he identified it as being able to plod. And we perhaps could understand when we hear some of the challenges that he faced in his life. He lost three of his seven children in childhood. His wife suffered from severe mental illness. He suffered from a skin condition that meant he couldn't go out into direct sunlight. He wasn't living in cloudy England. He was living in sunny India. And the work that he had done in translation, six years worth of work in manuscripts were destroyed by fire in one night. Now, can you imagine going through that and you realize, actually, he just accepted, okay, I've just got to take another step, another step, I'll plod 
on because I'm here for good. His motto was attempt, sorry, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. You see, it can be easy to be passive, can't it? And say, God, what what are you going to do today? What are you going to achieve today? William Carey said, no, yeah, I want to see what God's going to do, but I'm, I'm going to press on anyway. I'm just going to step out and see what happens. It's only crazy until you do it. John Wimber was uh, amazingly successful with healing. He saw hundreds, probably thousands of people healed and saw amazing uh, spiritual ministry with the Holy Spirit active in people's lives at different conferences. And after teaching on healing, praying for the sick and seeing people healed, he openly admitted, not only have I suffered physically with health problems, but I also spent a great deal of time struggling with depression during my fight, my battle with cancer. He said, sometimes our experiences don't fit with our understanding of what the Bible teaches. On the one hand, we know that God is sovereign and that he sent Jesus to commission us to pray for and heal the sick. On the other hand, we know from experience that healing does not always occur. This can be downright discouraging, he says. As I learned years ago in my own congregation when I began to teach on healing, it was nine months before we saw the first person healed. Imagine starting a series on healing. Yeah, we're going to pray for healing. This week, next week, any testimonies of healing? No. We're going to keep praying for healing. Next week, week after week, nine months before they saw their first person healed. And some people who heard his teaching on healing tried praying for a few people and they came back to him and they said, it doesn't work. He said, go away, pray for a thousand people, then let's talk. And it gives the impression, no, you've just got to keep plodding on. Winston Churchill uh, often His quotes were quite acerbic, Uh, but I came across this one, which I thought was very good. He says, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. You know, when we hit failures, we can feel like giving up, can't we? It's just like, oh, well, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. He says, no, success looks differently. Thomas Edison saw it slightly differently. He said this, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Which I think is a great approach. He's saying, no, no, I haven't failed. I'm still going. I'm still pressing on. Yeah, it hasn't worked yet, but I'm still pressing on. He also had several quotes about this subject. He said, many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And he says, when you've exhausted all possibilities, remember this, 
you haven't. That's a great quote. And he says, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. There's that sound, oh, you've just got to do it again. That gift of plodding. Edison, Thomas Edison was a prolific inventor. And amongst other things, he invented the light bulb, as you probably know. Literally bringing light to the world. Now, your and my contribution may not be seen quite so significantly by the world, but we do have the potential to change people's lives for eternity. And that has to be worth another step forward. Edison was one of the first inventors to apply principles of organized science and teamwork to the process of invention. He worked with many researchers and employees. He realized that actually there was value in doing this together, that we could learn from one another. And as you made mistakes and failures, so I could step forward and build on them. He was the first to establish an industrial research laboratory. He realized the value. You know, you know the, the phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants, those who've come before you, you take things forward. He realized that there was value in being together. And that is my second point. We're in this together. There's a fascinating question in this book, uh, in this last chapter. They say, who is the greatest character in the Old Testament after God. Now, who would you say? You know, it could be Moses, could be Abraham, you know, maybe David, Elijah, Isaiah, Gideon, Joseph. I mean, there are so many, aren't there? And they say, no, it's Israel. It was a people, not a person. This people that God was gathering together for his purposes. And you'll probably guess the answer to the second question. Who is the greatest character in the New Testament after Jesus? Maybe Simon Peter or Paul. No, they say the church, the people that one day will gather before the throne of God, representing every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. We're in this together. We were not designed to operate alone. In Hebrews, the writer says this, let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. You know, we've had a bit of that this morning, haven't we? We've been encouraged by the things that we've heard. And then he goes on to say, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. I wouldn't have necessarily put those things together you know, if I'd have started my sentence, try to encourage one another with love and good deeds, I wouldn't have gone on to say, don't stop meeting together. But you realize the value of that, that we're, we're here. We can, by being here, we can encourage one another. Just a few verses on from the, the ones I read in Romans 12, Paul's con, Paul continues and he says, just as we have many parts in one body, 
and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. He says, since we have gifts that gift differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly, if prophecy in proportion to one's faith. And he goes on to list other gifts. And I think sometimes we can misunderstand the impact of those verses by assuming that the two aspects are intrinsically linked. I'm part of the body by what I do. Now, I'm part of the body by who I am. You know, I don't go for a walk and leave my stomach behind if I'm not planning to have anything to eat or drink. You know, we all go together, all of me. I go for a walk and I take everything with me. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but the reality is, yeah, we do have a contribution to make. We have a part to play, but we do it by being here when the body gathers. We can then encourage one another. You see, even if I'm only a toenail, I want to be the best toenail I can. I, I want to grow at the right rate. I want to protect my toe. And I want to accept that sometimes I need to be cut so that I don't damage the toes around me. I want to be the best toe that I can be. And in spiritual terms, I do that by taking personal responsibility to stay close to Jesus. Staying close through his word, through his spirit, through praying, through a relationship with him. In Psalm 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. You know, we, we need to be rooted in Jesus. We need to have a close personal relationship with him. You know, I'm, I'm not the gardener in our family, but every now and again, I'm, I'm called upon to dig a hole or to dig out a large, healthy plant that's got to be moved somewhere else. And, you know, in my limited experience, I can say that a healthy plant doesn't have limited roots. You know, if it's this big, I don't make a hole that's just that. I have to go out here somewhere, and really deep, because those roots go deep and wide. But you see, if the, if the plant above ground is withered and dry, well, actually, I don't get called in to dig it out because you just pull it out because it's got no roots at all. And you may feel that this is a constant message. You hear it Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Read the word, pray, be filled with the Spirit, stay close to Jesus. And the answer is yes, it is because it's the only way to know him and therefore to be able to trust him when you go through challenging circumstances. Louis Giglio said, 
God is not putting you to the test to see what you're made of. He is putting you to the test so you can see what he is made of. And, you know, we can sometimes think, oh, we, that's what it, we're, we're being put to the test so we can see how strong we are. No, we're being put to the test so that we can see how strong God is and we can rely on him. But if you don't know him, if you don't have a relationship with him, you don't know that you can trust him. <clears throat> and finally, uh, I've stolen uh, my last point heading from one of the preach titles uh, early in this series. Do whatever he tells you. Um, it comes from, as you know, Mary saying to the servants at the, the wedding where the wine had run out, and they, she said to them, go to Jesus and do whatever he tells you. And I think it's a great phrase and helps us with that sense of plodding, the next step. What is it that God is saying to me today? What is it I need to do? Let me uh, read you uh, a story from uh, Mike Pilavachi. Um, he was in Finland in 1997 at a youth camp. And he says this, One afternoon, a 16-year-old called Timo asked to talk to me. We sat on a bench overlooking the lake, and Timo told, Timo told me his story. It was tragic. His father was an alcoholic and used to come home drunk and beat Timo and his mother. The boy felt powerless to defend either himself or his mum. Then, when Timo was nine, his father left home and never returned. Timo told me that he had no idea where his dad was or whether he was even alive. He told me that he felt both angry and depressed and struggled to believe in God's father love for him. I prayed with Timo and we agreed we would meet again the next day. The following afternoon, I was wearing my favorite sweater. I loved that sweater. It looked great and was comfortable and warm. As we sat on the bench overlooking the lake, I noticed Timo shivering in his T-shirt. I sensed the Lord telling me to lend Timo my sweater. I resisted. The Lord insisted. Reluctantly, I gave him the sweater. It was five sizes too big for the boy, but he told me how much he liked it. To my dismay, the Lord then told me to give Timo my sweater as a gift. I objected. The Lord insisted. Timo seemed delighted. I left for the airport minus my favorite jumper and not in the best of moods. Sixteen years later, I was back in Finland speaking at a pastor's conference. Before my final talk, my translator told me he wanted to say something to the congregation. He stood up and said, My name is Timo, and I'm 32 years old. Sixteen years ago, I went to a camp by a lake. Mike was the speaker, but he doesn't remember me. I told him the story of my alcoholic father, and how, as a result, I struggled to believe in and receive God's love for me. Mike listened to me over two afternoons. On the second afternoon, I was cold, and Mike gave me his sweater. Then he went back to England. What Mike doesn't know is that God used that sweater 
to change my life. My father had never given me any gifts and I was amazed when this stranger gave me such a great sweater. I began to think that maybe God was behind this gift and that maybe I could have hope that my life might change. He then reached into a bag and took out my jumper. I kept this for 16 years, he said, but today I give it back as it's done its job. I was stunned. I had no idea why God told me to give my sweater away and for 16 years it had been a puzzle to me. Then God, in his grace, showed me what he was doing behind my back. The lesson, keep being obedient or as I would put it, do whatever he tells you. And we're going to watch a a video uh, now. It's just a short video. Uh, so we'll need the lights out and I'll let Diana get ready. Um, it's, it's a video by a, uh, a manufacturer of sports goods. And uh, you'll recognise it, I'm sure, quite quickly. If you don't, you'll recognise the logo at the end. Uh, and it, it's not a Christian video at all. It's an advertising video. But I want you to listen out for some phrases. One is this. What a non-believer fails to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Or this, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Or this, don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. Let's watch this video. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. Lose 120 pounds and become an Ironman after beating a brain tumor. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. If you're born a refugee, Don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. When they talk about the greatest team in the history of the sport, make sure it's your team. If you have only one hand, Don't just watch football, play it at the highest level. And if you're a girl from Compton, don't just become a tennis player. Become the greatest athlete ever. Yeah, that's more like it. So don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. 
now you know where I got my title from. Now you may be slightly offended uh, by their focus on being the best because it, it doesn't sound very Christian, does it? We don't like the idea because we inevitably see it as comparing ourselves with others. And we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to say, well, I'm, I'm better than any of you because that doesn't feel right, does it? It's not very humble. But actually, they weren't comparing with others. They were just saying, be the best yourself. And I don't want to be a bad Christian. I don't want to be a mediocre Christian. I want to be the best Christian I can be, not in comparison with any of you, just in terms of what God is expecting of me. I want to be the best every day. And you see, I think that's how God looks at us. He doesn't compare us with each other. He doesn't you know, look at Quincy and say, oh yeah, well, I chose Quincy to lead the eldership team because Kevin's just not really good enough. You know, he doesn't know. He said, I've given Quincy a number of gifts and I'm developing them and part of that is going to be leading this team and then there may be other things for him in the future. I've got other things for Kevin. He's got other gifts. He, I, but we each need to be the best that we can be in what God has given us. This, I think, has been an excellent series based on an excellent book. And if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do so because it's very easy to read and it's very inspiring. And I wanted to inspire you this morning. I didn't want to talk about perseverance. I didn't want to talk about sustaining the supernatural. I wanted to inspire you. I wanted you to consider, yeah, it's crazy, but I'm going to step forward and try it. And I only have one objection to this book, and that's the title. You see, I think Everyday Supernatural is great, but it sort of stretches into eternity, doesn't it? And it feels like, goodness me, I've got to be supernatural every day for the rest of my life. Oh, my word, that's a challenge. I'd rather, it's probably not so uh, helpful, but have it called today supernatural because as they quote uh, mother teresa in here she says yesterday has gone you see we, we can't do anything about yesterday or the past we we've got no control over that at all tomorrow has not yet come Every day of the rest of your life has not yet come. We only have today. So let us begin. And that's my encouragement to you on the back of this series, on the back of this book. Not on the back of this book, but on the back of this book. That to be inspired, to be supernatural today. As Claire said, can I pray for you now? Are you up for being supernatural today? Every day, but supernatural today. If you wake up in the morning and say, I'm willing to plod, God, 
I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to do for what you want to do. And I'm going to attempt some things. And I don't know whether they're part of your will or purpose or not, but I'm just going to go for it anyway. Then I think you will be supernatural every day. Amen.